If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and find verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and find your place there in verse 12 as we pick up from where we began last week. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, let me read just this verse for us. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Corey ten Boom was the daughter of a Dutch watchmaker in Holland during World War II. She and her family hid Jews in their home to protect them from being sent to the prison camps. One day the Nazi officers arrested Corey and her family for hiding Jewish people in their home. They were sent to prison. After many long weeks in a dark and crowded prison cell in Holland, Corey and her sister Betsy had been packed into dirty freight car along with 80 other sobbing, suffocating women and hauled to Ravensbrück, the dreaded concentration camp in the heart of Germany. For four days, the women were crammed tightly against each other in the pitch-dark, sweltering car without food or water until at last the train halted and they were herded into the camp by screaming prison guards with submachine guns. Corey and Betsy had been told that conditions at Ravensbrook were bad, but nothing had prepared them for this. 1,400 women had been forced to sleep in a concrete room that was made to hold only 400 The bedding hay was soiled and rancid. Eight putrid, overflowing toilets served the entire room and to reach them they had to crawl over rows of the overcrowded, sagging platforms that served as the makeshift beds. Roll came, roll call rather, came at 4.30am sharp, followed by an 11 hour day of heavy labour as they listened to the bellows and screams of angry supervisors. Conditions were so terrible that hundreds of women died in the labour camp, including Corey's sister Betsy. And yet, through it all, Corey leaned on Jesus Christ for supernatural strength to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Instead of focusing on her own misery, she turned outward to the women around her to give them hope, comfort and peace in the truth of Christ. After enduring unspeakable miseries, including the death of her sister, Corey relied on the grace of God to forgive her enemies and became a living testimony of the power of God. When she was finally released from prison, Corey began to travel the world and speak of his amazing grace. One night, some years later, after sharing her testimony at a church in Germany, a man approached her. What you said tonight really impacted me, he said sincerely. I've done many things in my life that I deeply regret. What a miracle to know that Christ is willing to forgive even me. As he was speaking, Corey froze in shock. She recognised him. He had been a guard at the concentration camp where Betsy had lost her life, one of the cruelest guards. And now he was extending his hand in friendship to her. All of the old emotions, the anger, resentment and indignation that she'd experienced in the camp came flooding back. She found herself unable to take the man's hand or even reply. She felt God challenging her to forgive him just as he had been, just as she had been forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus for her sins. In her autobiography, Corey writes, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Lord Jesus, I prayed. 
I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. You take the step of obedience, came God's gentle reply in her heart, and I will do the rest. So Corey obeyed. She reached out and shook the man's hand. As she did so, she writes, the supernatural love of Christ filled her heart. She saw him as Christ did. And her bitterness was replaced by love and compassion. As I took his hand, she says, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. You see, church love is the central characteristic in our text. Be an example in word and conduct in love. But it is also the central reality in the life of the Christian. A church can have all the spiritual gifts operating and we're going to deal with that sometime soon. We can have great preaching. We can have faith that moves mountains, Paul says. You can have commitment even to the point of martyrdom. You can be generous above measure. And yet without love, we are nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, Paul says. In other words, a church that operates without love as the primary, preeminent and prevailing attitude produces sounds and noise, but without any real and eternal substance. We've been looking at 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. We've considered... The first two characteristics of a model Christian, namely godly speech and godly conduct. Today we will consider the third and just the third and that is love. Love. It's such an enormous subject and the study that has been done in preparation, there is far more material than I could ever cover, that's for sure. But in the few moments that we have together, I want you to join me as we consider this truth. The characteristics of a model Christian, part two, dealing specifically with the realm of love. Heavenly Father, uh, as always, I call upon uh, your help, your strength and your power. No spiritual work can be done outside of yourself. And so I pray that you would uh, remove any aspect of myself in this, that the Spirit of God would take each word and use them mightily in lives here. Uh, Only he is able to divide accordingly and make application that uh, produces real life change. And so we Uh, recognize that and we submit to his authority, his power and ask that you would do a great work in us and through us in these next few moments together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I have five points this morning, a number of sub points between some of them and uh, I have no idea how we're going to get through it but we're going to try. The very first thing, the very first point I want you to note as we talk about the subject of love is I need to give you the explanation of love. Point one, the explanation of of love. And what an interesting word that is. Such a common word has so many different nuances and meanings. So the first thing I did this week, which I don't do all that often, is I picked up an Oxford dictionary in the English. Normally I go to the Greek first, but I went to the English. I want to get an idea. What does the world say love is? As a noun, the Oxford dictionary proffers nine distinct definitions. Here they are. It's an intense feeling of deep affection or fondness. It's a great liking. For example, his love of music. Number three, it is sexual passion or excitement. Number four, it's sexual relations. Number five, it is a person who loves. For example, my love. Come on, my love. That's what it says here. Number six, it's colloquial. A person who, one who is, a person one is fond of. He's a love. 
for example. Number seven, another colloquial form, a form of address. Good morning, love. Number eight, affectionate greetings. Give him or pass on my love. Number nine, in certain games, nil, as in love 30, love 40. Those were the nine distinctions, definitions of love. Boy, they missed the point. Now, let me give you the Greek language. The Greek language has four words for love. And uh, those who are more observant will have noticed that on the wall, we don't normally, for visitors, we don't normally have Greek words up on the wall. That's not normally what happens. But I put them up here for a reason. If you can see that, you'll see why in just a moment. There are four words in the Greek for love. Three of them appear in the Bible. One does not. And the Greek language has an incredible way, which is why I love it so much, has an incredible way of giving nuances to words that in English we've just got one word. We've got the word love. And it can mean I really like music, it can mean sexual relations, it can mean all these other things and yet we don't know outside of the context what is meant by the word love. But thankfully in the Greek we have a little bit more given to us, four different words. So we have agapeo or agape, we're familiar with that word, I'm sure. It appears 258 times in the New Testament. We have the word phileo, the second one here, which appears 26 times in the New Testament. The word eros does not appear at all in the Bible. And the word stage, which is the fourth one here, appears just once in the Bible and it's a compound word, not used very often at all. So here's the definitions real quick, just to put you in the picture. I'm not trying to sound clever, but it will help us. I have called agapeo or agape kingdom love for the point of our message today. Kingdom love. What I mean by that is it is derived from God and only exists in his kingdom. Okay. The second one, phileo love, which I have called friendship love, is an affectionate, pleasurable and most often expressed in companionship. Deals more with emotions and feelings, whereas agapeo or agape love does not. Eros love. I've entitled sexual love. It is erotic and passionate. It is based in self-satisfaction and is usually expressed in ecstasy. This is most akin to the concept we hear in the world of falling in love. Okay. Interestingly, that word does not appear in the Bible and I have put the word love in inverted commas because I don't really believe it is a form of love. But it is called a love in the Greek language. And then stage, the final one, is what I have called familial love. And it's used most often in Greek literature to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife or a daughter uh, and a father or a mother and a son. It deals with that which is natural, that comes from you. So the idea there is that uh, this kind of love would be from a parent to a child. It's only natural that a parent would love that which is from them. And that is what we talk about when we say stargate love. Our attention today, that's just to give you a summary, our attention today is on the first, kingdom love, agapeo or agape. Now, no doubt if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you will have heard that word used. But may I suggest to you that it is often misused and misrepresented and hopefully we can clear some of that up today. Here is what kingdom love, agape, agapeo love is not. It is not an impulse from the feelings. Did you get that? It is not an impulse from the feelings. 
It does not always run with our natural inclinations. Nor does it spend itself upon those for whom there is some affinity discovered. In other words, agape or agapeo love is not based upon the object, but derived from its origin. Not object based, but origin based. Let me explain what I mean. It is an act of the will produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So for example, a Christian is able to love one who is unlovely in their human perspective because the origin of their love is not from them, but from the Spirit of God who dwells within. Do you get the point? The point is it's not about the object, but about the origin. The love that we observe today in the world is dependent on the worthiness and acceptability of the object to the lover. Is everybody still with me? Does that make sense? So today in the world we see a love that says, if you please me, I will love you. That's worldly love. This is not the case in God's kingdom. Have you ever wondered, and we're going to look at it in a moment, have you ever wondered, how is it possible for me as a Christian to love my enemies? Well, it cannot be possible if it's based upon the worthiness and the affinity of the object. Who wants to love someone who hates them? No wonder it cannot be done outside of the Spirit of God. Now, the world is very familiar with phileo love and common grace, that which God gives is, it is operational in the world. We can see in the world happy marriages and they are based on phileo love. We can also see unhappy marriages and we can see that divorce rates are through the air, uh, through the sky, uh, but we need to understand that even phileo love, which is a great love that's given by God, without agape love as its foundation, it can and often does collapse when crisis when it is strained. You say, why do marriages and relationships and divorce rates so high? It's because when strained, phileo love will not do it. It will not do it. It's affectionate, it's emotional and it's powerful, but it is not agape love which comes from God. In God, we see that agape or agapeo love is constant. It's deep. It's immeasurable towards entirely unworthy objects. Therefore, the Christian who walks in God's agape, agapeo love, will love their enemies. They will bless those who curse them. They will pray for those who despitefully use them, just like the Lord did whilst he was on earth. Now here is really, this is crucial, just in our explanation and definition since God is love, and we know that, First John tells us, since God is agape love, he is love, he doesn't contain love, he is the very essence of what this love is. It comes from him, but he is this love by definition. And love comes to us from God by the Spirit. Listen very carefully. It is impossible for the world to know the reality of love except that which is observed in the life of a Christian. Did you get that? 
It is impossible. It is impossible for the world to know the reality of God's love unless it is lived out in the life of a Christian. You want to talk about evangelism? Evangelism 101 is this, love, love like God loves. We have all this focus on preach and preach and preach and we need to preach the gospel. But you know what the world needs to see more than anything else is the love of God as it flows through us. That will be the greatest form of evangelism in the world. Because you know what the Bible says? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you agape one another. If you agapeo one another. That's how the world will see the love of God. You and I are the only love that the world sees. The Lord Jesus is not physically with us now on earth. He is with us in our life, but he's not physically here. He's ascended to the heavens. He's left his disciples with this great privilege of demonstrating the love of God. Here is something that just blew my mind yesterday as I continued to study. The love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts is intended to produce wonder and amazement in the world. The Spirit's presence within you was designed to shed love into your hearts, Romans 5 tells us, with this purpose that the world would wonder and be amazed. How can you love that person who has so wrongfully hurt you? To be a light bearer is to be a love bearer. Don't get it the wrong way around. See, here's what happens. Without agapeo love, the world resorts to ecstasy, to eros. Not if found in the Bible, but found everywhere in our culture, right? That kind of love, that sexual kind of love. Uh, the world resorts to ecstasy and eros, an experience that makes them feel good. And we say, how is it that our world is filled with orgies and free love and rampant pornography and illicit affairs and many other sexually charged activities? Simply because of this, the world is seeking to acquire love. But the best it has is a pseudo form of love that feels good for a time, but must be perpetuated because it has no permanency. And you know what? These activities grow increasingly more and more depraved and heinous in the world because we're on a mission for love. We're looking for love. People don't want to talk about this, but the reality is every person is looking for true love and security and they're looking for it all over the place and yet we have that. We have that in the person of Jesus Christ. That is kingdom love. And so what we are seeking to do is introduce people to the true love of God that is eternal, deep, immeasurable and free. Here's a quick thought for you by way of an application under this first point. Every relational problem in the world, when I say relational, social problem, problems that we occur in with people, is an opportunity for you and I as a believer to evangelise through love. Let me show you what I mean. Here's a few uh, little examples. Were you unlawfully dismissed from work? Great. So what? Your former employer has the privilege of being the recipient of your love when others would ordinarily hate. Yeah? Most of us would say, oh, I don't know if it's great. Were you maligned publicly and made out to be a fool? Great! Your accuser will perceive in your godly response a love that covers the multitude of sins. Were you abused and mistreated? Great! 
your abuser and persecutor is provided with the good news of Jesus Christ through your testimony and your response in love. This goes against everything. It goes against the very grain of our culture, even against maybe our own grain if we are in fact entrenched in the culture. Did that fellow Christian, let's bring it home here, did that fellow Christian gossip about you? Great! The weaker Christian has the opportunity to witness mature love in you which neither pouts nor holds a grudge. Now when was the last time someone said, I just heard some gossip about you and you said, oh that's wonderful, what a privilege that I have to show the love of Christ that will supersede that sin. Did that sister in Christ offend you falsely, accusing you? Great. Now you have the occasion to respond lovingly without arrogance and pride and display the love of Christ. Kingdom love, agape love, is the realm in which we live if you are a Christian. It's not something you put on. You have this. You must walk in this. Ephesians says, walk in agape love. Let me say this to you. This love defines us. It is our identity as disciples. That's the explanation of love. So we define it. I want you to see secondly then, the example of love. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, our text says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And we're looking at this matter of in love as an example. But here's something we need to understand. Before we can become the example that we should be in love, we must consider our example. Let's soar higher than our own selves and look to the ultimate example. And you know I'm sure to whom I'm speaking. Let's go to John chapter 17, please. Turn with me to John 17. If we're to operate with the same love God commands us to be like His Son, we need to know what He was like. John chapter 17, please. If you'd find your place in verse 20, we're jumping right in the middle, but for the sake of time, you follow along in the context later on. But in John chapter 17 and verse 20, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ to His heavenly Father, Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them." It is clear from this passage and a multiplicity of other passages the relationship between the Father and the Son, an incredible example of love. Um, Our example of love is not you and I. Our example of love is not to be found in the world. It's to be found in the Godhead. 
Um, with all spiritual truth, our example is God. God is the basis. He's the foundation, the origin and the example of this love. You know, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. We won't turn there, but in Romans fifteen thirty, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me. It is clear that in the Godhead, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have this incredible harmony. We have this eternal love, the fullness of love, the unchanging model for the believer. If you say, I want to see an example of love, you need to look no further than the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In there is the perfection of love because God is love. Don't go looking around for an example of the love that you want to follow. Look to the Scriptures which denote the truth of God, Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here's a question we might say, to what extent should I love? The answer is as far as is evidenced in the Godhead. In other words... Love eternally, love immeasurably and love completely. How far should I love? Love eternally, love immeasurably and love completely. The example is found in God. God is love. Let's look at the third thing, the expression of love. And of all of the the truths in this message, there's so many that are to be shared in just a moment, but the expression of love is an incredible theme. Third point, the expression of love. Did you know that the miracle, the miracle and the mystery of all the universe is that God so loved, but let me change some of the words here. God so loved the fallen unregenerate world that he surrendered and sacrificed his own son so that the enemies of his love could be redeemed and experience everlasting life. That is the miracle and the mystery of the ages from past to present to future. It's the mystery of all eternity that the God of all the universe would be interested in redeeming unregenerate, depraved sinners such as ourselves. It is an incredible thought. We won't turn there, but John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We, we know the verse so well that we, it loses its power because we are so familiar with it. But wow, what a verse. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I'm a little bit nervous about turning to Romans chapter 5 because this passage is just so pregnant with truth, I don't know if I'll ever get out of it, but it's just supposed to be uh, just a few moments in Romans chapter 5 to show you some things here. Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 6. We need all the context, but we're going to start in verse 6 nonetheless. Romans 5 and verse 6, For a while we were still weak. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right there is agape, agapeo, love expressed. Expressed. God shows his 
agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't believe the modern songwriters who say things like, God came to this earth because he saw how much value was in us, how precious we are. That is, that is utter rubbish. There is nothing precious in us save only that we can be his possession that offers all glory to God. But in us dwelleth no good thing, he says. Nothing in the flesh pleases God. He didn't look and say, wow, I want this precious individual here because I see in them so much potential. And That's not how it works. It is not based upon the object but upon the origin which is our God. That's why we don't need to spend our days trying to work out, well, were we chosen or were we not chosen? That's not all that relevant in this discussion because it's all in the love of God. It's all encapsulated in His character and we don't know the fullness of that. We are not given an insight into all of that. We don't know all of that, but this we know. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's an interesting thought. Love can be known only from the actions it prompts. Did you get that? Love can be known only from the action it prompts. This expression of God's love is how we know He loves. There is an expression. It's a doing word. It's not just simply a being word. It is a doing word. And you know, love had its perfect expression among men in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, what is love? You go to the cross. You go to the grave. You go to our Saviour. You say, how do I replicate love? How am I supposed to be as a Christian? You go to the cross. You go to the grave. You go to the Saviour. That's how you know love. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the demonstration, the satisfaction for sin. 1 John 3.1, here's a word, just a little note here. Don't quickly go past little words in the Scripture like behold. Behold, I have just been chastened by the Lord this week about the word behold. I just skip right over. Behold means stop, look and see. And in the King James, it's better translated for the 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, behold, what manner of love. Father hath given, is bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Behold it! Stop and see! Pause! Don't go past this this phrase. This is incredible, John says. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First John 3.16 By this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Wait a minute. Are you saying that true love is prepared to lay down its life? Well, the expression of true love did that in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we say with the songwriter in this expression of love, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Can it be? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
The incredible expression of love. In other words, the gospel. Point number four. I want you to see the experience of love. It's not enough to just have an explanation of love. It's not enough for the example of love. It's not just enough the expression of love, but now we have to deal with the experience of love. See, one cannot know in the true sense the love of God without experiencing it. So we can have, and there may well be, those who are lost in our midst who've never truly tasted and seen the love and goodness of God. You can look at the word on the wall there, agapeo and agape and kingdom love, and you can hear the definition and you can even see the expression in the Son of God. But unless you have truly experienced it, you do not know the love of God. You know of it, but you do not know it. You may be able to explain it, but have you experienced it? It's not the love of a parent or a boyfriend or a companion. It's the limitless, eternal, secure, self-sacrificing love that comes from God alone. True love is only known in Christ. His sacrifice is the expression of divine love, is the only means of light and life. His gospel, the good news, is this. This is the good news of the gospel that there is more to life than the weak, fickle, sexual, apathetic, pseudo-love that exists and pervades our culture. That's not it. That's not all there is. And we need to shout this from the housetops, from the rooftops, from the byways and the highways. That's not all there is, folks. What you have out there is not all there is. There is a greater love. And that, that emptiness and that void within your heart is filled in the person of Jesus Christ when you experience His eternal and secure love. See, mankind was born with a desire to experience the fullness of love. God put it there. But Christ, Jesus Christ, is the only means of understanding and knowing that. So before we finish this point, I want to ask a question. And the question is this. Have you, have I, personalised it, experienced truly the love of God. I want you to test the reality of that this morning by answering these questions. The first and most important question, and these are questions that will test whether you truly have experienced it. Number one, am I saved? That's a that's a jargon, that's Christian jargon that doesn't mean much to the world today, so let me say it a different way. Have I responded to God's expression of love by placing my total dependence upon Christ's saving and atoning work on the cross and His resurrection that bought my pardon and redeemed my soul? Have I ever taken the the, the discussion of His expression and it has become real to me so that I know the man upon that cross, the man in that grave, the man who raised from the dead on that third day is my Saviour and the only one who can do it. Am I saved? So, well, I think so. Made a profession of faith. Okay, let's move on to question two. Perhaps you're not sure, but let's ask question number two. Am I now, present, continuous, possessed by a new love? Am I possessed by a new love? The love of God invades the heart of an unbeliever the moment they are saved. 
So they're no longer an unbeliever. The love of God invades a man's heart at the moment of salvation because the Spirit of God comes to dwell within that person and they are possessed now, not by darkness and evil, but by the Spirit of God and His new love. Here's an example. The God I once hated, I now love. The sin that I once loved now drives me crazy. Now it consumes me, though I uh, engage in it and though at times I, I enjoy it, I find that for a time afterwards I can't bear it anymore because within me there is a new presence and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. I can't handle my sin unconfessed for long. That is a very good test of true salvation. Am I possessed by a new love? Number three, is this new love that has not come from me growing and maturing? He who began the work and you will complete it, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, and this Holy Spirit's presence produces and matures love as an element of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. The very first element, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it continues to grow and mature as a Christian. Is my love clearly growing and maturing for Christ, for others? That is a good indication of a changed life, one who has experienced the love of God. The fourth and final question to ask here, do I love those who previously I could not? Corey Ten Boom, can you picture that? Boy, that is a soul-stirring account, isn't it? Can you imagine being confronted by the guard who was so uh, relentless in, in persecution and may have even been directly involved in the death of your own sister and here you are preaching and telling others about the, the gospel of God and you're telling them about the joy that is and suddenly there is that persecutor. There is that one. There is that person, that enemy of your own soul offering their hand. And you know what true love does? And it may not happen the first time because we, we may be weak, we may be feeble in our walk with the Lord. But the truth is that as our love matures and grows, we will be able to extend the hand and say, I love you not with phileo, not with eros, not with starge, but with the agapeo love that comes from the Spirit of God that is not based upon you, but are based upon God. Is your love like that? Those are indications that you truly have experienced the love of God. All of that was the introduction to the message. But you'll be thankful to know that it's a very short last point. All of that is for this one purpose, point number five. In First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, be an example in love. And so we need to look at the exercise of love. So we've got the explanation of it, that's that's great. We've got the example of it in the person of Jesus Christ and, and the Godhead. We have the expression of it and now we confirm the experience of that love and now we need to say, okay, go and walk in it. What's the exercising of our love? He says, set the believers an example in agapeo. Now you're not going to get away with it too quickly just yet because there's sub points, but we're almost done. So here's the question we have to ask as we draw to a conclusion here. How does a believer set an example in the realm of love? How do we do that? Sub-point number one. It almost doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it. Love God 
supremely. Love God supremely. We would say, well, that's Christianity 101, isn't it? Yeah, but when we get that right, everything else works. And so often that is not right. So often that is not right in my own life. I find there are idols left, right and centre and my life is spent with the Spirit's power seeking to ensure that Christ is enthroned on my heart's throne. We must love God supremely. Mark 12.30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That little word all messes everything up for me. It would be okay if it said, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart. Well, I do. You love the Lord your God with your soul. Well, I do. With my mind, I do. With my strength, I do. But no, he says not just those. All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It's to be about him. Love God supremely. I was okay with that one this week. It was sub point number two that really, really blew my mind. And that is this. Love like Christ. We don't have time to turn there, jot it down, make a note of this verse, John 13:34. We know it, but maybe you haven't thought about this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's fine. The next phrase, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Loving one another isn't a problem. I, I love you. I love the I love the world as best I know. I, I think for the most part, agapeo operates in my life. But love to this extent, the Lord Jesus says. It's not just love, but love just like I love you. Well, that brought me unstuck yesterday. So, Lord, I am to be willing to die. Yes. Yes, you are. Well, hang on, that's not very culturally acceptable. Who cares? It's not about culture, is it? It's not about the pervasive idea of what love is. It's the love of Christ that we are seeking to conform to and be a replication of in this world and in our own life. And so we are to love like Christ does. I don't know what that means in your life. I don't know what area that means, whether as a husband you need to love your wife more than you do. I don't know if it's as a wife you need to love your husband or your children or the lost or the unsaved world or the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know what that means for you, but we are to love like Jesus Christ. And that is a massive command. Subpoint number three. And we know this too, but it is this obedience is the expression of our love. You say, how do I love God? Obey him. Obey him. Despite whether I feel like it or not, obey him. Because John fourteen fifteen to 16, if you love me, if you agape me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, agape, he will keep my word and my father will agape him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Time and time again, it's love will obey. You say, I love God, obey him. You say, I am obeying him, you must love him. You must. The the combination works. Now, sometimes we obey out of legalism, but we ought to still obey even when our love is waning. Because in that obedience, there is a joy and a blessing to be had that draws us back to that joy of that love and the expression of that love. Obedience is the expression of our love. 
The last thing that we need to cover this morning as we draw to a close, I didn't know what else to call this, so sub-point number four is this, Paul's treatment of agape love. Paul's treatment of agape love. This is the final thing you need to know as we talk about being an example in this matter of love. And you know where we're going to turn? 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go 1 Corinthians 13, that familiar passage that sometimes again because of its familiarity we lose sight of the gems found in it. And you'll be pleased to know there's 16 points. And we'll cover one every 30 seconds. Here's the plan. I believe this is the most comprehensive treatment of this first kind of love. Kingdom love found here in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, what have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We won't read the rest of the chapter. 16 elements given to us here. Attributes of divine kingdom love. Let's take them one at a time real quick. I'll give you a definition for each and then you make personal application. Love is patient, verse 4. Now this just simply means to be long in spirit, to not lose heart. You know, love is patient with wayward children. Love is patient with wayward Christians. Love is patient with those who frustrate us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Verse 4. Literally, it's good-natured. It's gentle. It's tender. It's courteous. If you're looking for a verse that tells us that we need to be actively pursuing one another and being benevolent, this is it. Love is kind. Looking to help and aid. Love does not envy or boast. In verse 4. Here's one that you don't think of. This is what it means. It does not delight in the demise of others. That's very soul-searching. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when uh, something occurs in someone's life who is... uh, antagonistic towards us or opposing us, something happens in their life and we, under our breath, go, good, that's good, God's punishment. Maybe you're not like me, maybe I'm just horrendous, but sometimes we have that that feeling within us that says, I'm glad something happened. That is exactly the opposite of what this kind of love is. Instead of saying, ha ha, you deserve that. So how can I? How can I be a blessing? How can I serve you and minister to you in this? Though I may know that that is a deserving thing. But then hang on a second. I thought my own death and eternal hell was deserving for me. So at what point do I ever have the right to judge? Love does not envy. Love is not arrogant. 
End of verse 4, it is not arrogant, puffed up, inflated, vain. The opposite is meekness and modesty, being unobtrusive. I'm not seeking my own glory here. If I seek my own glory, then I rob God of his. I'm a thief. That's never how love operates. That's never how God's kingdom love operates. Now, the sixth thing is love is not rude. Verse 5. It's not disgraceful. It's not distasteful. It's not without respect. It's not improper conduct. Love is not rude. Number seven, love does not insist on its own way. Verse five. It's not self-centered. It's not all about me. It's not about my needs. It's not about how much I need and want and, and the circumstances of my own life. It's always about otherism. It's always looking for the other to bless and to encourage and to build up and to minister to. I'm prepared to sacrifice my own things for the good of others is the concept here. Love is hard. Love is difficult, isn't it? It's not, this isn't, this isn't our natural tendency in our flesh. This is only by the power of the Spirit of God. Can I say no to myself and yes to somebody else? And yet, that's what we see in kingdom love. God said no to his son. You die and yes to your life. That's love. Love does not insist on its own way. Number eight, love is not irritable. It's not made sour or bitter. You know that bitter aftertaste we get when we eat something or we drink something? It doesn't turn like that. It's not nice on the, on the face and then later on there's this bitter aftertaste in the mouth of the person because there's not that love, there's not that true concern. They're angered, they're provoked. Love is not irritable. Number nine, love is not resentful. This one, this one's really tough. This is one I have to quote to myself very often. To think no evil of another. We think of resentful as uh, holding a grudge. That's not what the Greek word here means. This literally means it never supposes that a good action has a bad motive. If you're like me, you'll look at a circumstance and you'll, you'll, you'll make a judgment call and say, oh, there was clearly a wicked motive there. I don't know that, we don't know that, you don't know that. And here's what love does. It assumes the best. It thinks the godly thing has taken place. Even though that may not be the natural course of my flesh, it overcomes that and says, I'm going to bless in this circumstance, even though I might think differently. Thinks the best. Love is not resentful. Does not impute evil. Number 10, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It's not excited by the vices and sins of others when they're guilty of a crime or transgression. It doesn't take pleasure in malicious reports of somebody else. It's not a joy. You know when you are with people who gossip, they find energy in information. They find a joy in more information that is of a negative aspect. Number 11, love rejoices in truth. It's overjoyed at piety, at virtue. Loves the truth. Number 12, love bears all things. Literally, it covers all things. It conceals the faults and imperfections of others. It does not blaze abroad the sin of others. Number 13, 
And there are so much more. If you want some more information, see me afterwards. I've got bucket loads of info here. <laughs> Love believes all things. Now, don't misunderstand this. It doesn't mean they believe every fable and every fallacy that's going around. That's not what it means. It believes the best about others and it will not credit others with evil, similar to what we talked about with resentfulness. It operates and embraces the accolades given to others and promotes them. Uh, You ever find that you have a feeling within you, perhaps, um, where someone is given praise and uh, worth is ascribed to them and if there's a jealousy that would creep up within you, that's exactly what love does not do. It rejoices that they have been praised for their work. Love believes all things. Number 14, love hopes all things. It has a positive outlook on life in every circumstance. Um, it's not the glad game of Pollyanna like we talk about. Some people who are maybe old enough to remember Pollyanna, everything's a glad game. We're going to be glad about this, glad about that. That's not, this is, it has a hope for all things that are good as it relates to God. This is going to turn out good. We're going to be hoping. We're not the half glass empty person. We're the half glass full person. The philosophy of life, so to speak, is this. I have absolute hope because I know who's on the throne. So love hopes all things because it knows who's in charge. Absolute hope. It operates as a beacon of hope for others. Number 15, love endures all things. It literally bears up under. It doesn't complain, it's sustained. Maintains a cheerful outlook in spite of treatment from others that is unkind. Love endures all things. And then the final thing, number 16, is love never ends. The true love, the kingdom love, is a permanent, a deep and an everlasting love. It's unfluctuating and constant in its purest form, which is from God. It is fixed upon the recipient despite their response. Love does not end. If you get all that in order, you will be a good disciple of Jesus Christ. If we get this all in perfect working, functioning order as a church, which will never happen in its fullness. But wow, what we will do for a world outside that looks and says, ah, that's a love I've never seen. That's a love I've never experienced. In conclusion, 1 John 3, 14 to 18, I want to read this and we'll close. The apostle of love, John, writes this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, John says, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 Timothy 4.12, set the believers an example in love. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the ability to concentrate, the energy to preach. Thank you for your word, for the, the power of it. Thank you, Lord, that it opens our eyes to truths. Uh, that we may not have seen. Uh, Lord, my, uh, my deepest heart's cry before you now is that those who have never experienced the love of God would today uh, be birthed into the kingdom of God, into kingdom love. And then secondly, Lord, that those of us here 
as believers, those who have had it explained, understand the example, have seen it expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, have experienced it, that, oh Lord, we would now exercise it, that we would grow and mature in this area of love for your glory, for our good, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.